0: Actually, a lot. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: Pad up. It's the Australian Cricket Podcast. And here are your hosts.
2: Welcome to the Australian Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Mensel a.k.a. Meners. And joining me for this edition of the podcast, I have the one of the hosts of the Big Smash Cricket Podcast. Welcome back, Paul Dennett. How are you? Great to be here, Meners. What a load of cricket we've got on. Too much cricket's never enough. And the other panellist on this week's show is a one of the original panellists and also an expert for the Raw and made appearances on ABC Grandstand TV. Welcome back to
3: the show, Joe. Great to be here, manners. I'm uh, looking forward to the uh, Pakistan series, which I know we're going to get into in this podcast. Look,
2: we are going to get into that, but I've got to, look, I've got to put you on the spot now, Joe. Yeah. I want to know why you haven't embraced Twitter yet. You're a big cricket fan. I sent you 100 messages saying get on Twitter, and every one of them you're ignored. The tape's rolling. You can't ignore it now. Well, why haven't you embraced social media? It's
1: a bit like... It's 2016.
3: The, it's a bit like the 20 the t20 version of journalism isn't it i'm still a bit of a traditionalist i like the longer formats Uh, i think you should get on
1: twitter at joe loves cricket i didn't think it was actually possible today in this day and age to watch cricket without also being on twitter at the same time (laughs) it's a bit like the old proverbial
3: if you know if you don't comment it on on twitter it's like the tree falling in the forest did it really happen exactly so you've (laughs) got to get on twitter (laughs) (laughs) Now, in this edition of the show,
2: we've got lots to get through. We're going to wrap up the final one-day game of the Chapel Hadley Trophy. Then we're going to preview the highly anticipated Test Series versus Pakistan that kicks off at the end of this week. Then we're going to wrap it all up with some read and react and uh, what's made the panelists happy in the last week of cricket. So let's get things going with the final match of the Chapel Hadley Trophy. It was a dead rubber. And the selectors again snubbed Glenn Maxwell. Now, Joe, you made a comparison
3: to me of Glenn Maxwell and Dean Jones. Do you want yeah. to elaborate on that for the listeners? I, I do mannerors because I think that this non-selection was in part a disciplinary measure, which concerns me because I think that you know he was fined, that should have been the full scope of the of the punishment. Um, and I know that Dino, I think, was probably not selected at times in his career due to comments that he made in the media. I, interestingly, Dino was in the Fairfax newspapers over the weekend showing some sympathy to Dino. But wouldn't it be a, a, a... Sorry, to Maxie. Wouldn't it be a travesty if we can't accommodate a personality like Glenn Maxwell because we're so focused on this team culture? Uh, for, for me as a, as a journalist, as, as Adam Collins pointed out last week, It's such a shame if we force people into the what I call the yeah, nah, all credit to the boys' culture where they don't actually say anything in interviews. Yeah, I agree with that. But also, I think it goes further. This is not good for Australian cricket. Now, Maxwell
2: was picked in this squad. He hasn't played any of these games, and he had to sit out a Sheffield Shield game To be basically a drinks runner, so I, you know, he could have been playing for Victoria if the selectors had decided to not bring him into the squad at all. So in the end, Maxwell has missed out on more cricket, which means he has less of a chance to push his claim
1: for India. And I think it's really unfair on him again. I was going to say that I think that they still have him in mind for India. And the one good thing that could come out of this is they may be trying to send him the message you've got to just settle down a bit and score some more runs, and I think that Maxwell would be it would be beneficial to his career to go out there, take a little bit of time early on, and do a bit, a bit like what David Warner's been doing, because he's that good a player that he should be scoring more. Well,
3: the comparison has been made to Travis Head, who's obviously bowling a bit of off spin, so it's quite a close comparison, that... They like Travis head because he can build into an innings that he you know he doesn 't have to be blazing away from ball one, um, whereas I think they feel like with maxwell he 's always a liability because he could throw away his wicket cheaply um, but but that 's obviously a wider issue
2: well, the Maxwell saga continues, but one player that has stood up in this series with another exceptional performance in the final game was the newly appointed Reverend David Warner. Australia made 8 for 264 in the final game against New Zealand. David Warner made 156 off 128, run out off the last ball of the innings, which was such a shame because he could have joined Damien Martin as the only two Australian opening batsmen to bat through a uh, whole 50-over one-day innings. It was his seventh one-day international ton of the year. He equalled Ganguly, but the interesting thing was Ganguly and Sashin Tendulka both played over 30 innings to get their century records, whereas David Warner has hit seven centuries in 23 one-day innings this year. And he has 595 runs in his last six one-day international innings. It was an amazing thing, but the funny thing was it was the seventh in- instance of one Australian batsman outscoring the entire opposition. New Zealand were all out for 147 and David Warner made 156. A really pathetic performance by New Zealand in that
1: final game. I don't think so. I think that it was just brilliant from David Warner. I mean, the rest of Australia only made 108. I think it was a very tough pitch and David Warner was the only one who could handle it. I mean, look at Travis Head, how in the the first game he scored a sparkling 50. He was hell-bent on scoring runs quickly in this game and he just couldn't. He got... 30 something off, 70 something deliveries, and he was. And the that se- was the next highest score. That was the next highest score. That shows. I mean, Steve Smith struggled, and if Steve Smith's struggling, you know it's tough. I think that, um, and we saw overnight in, in India, Virat Kohli getting a double hundred. I think that we've got two players in Warner and Kohli who are finally now fully blossoming, and Warner may well be the best batsman in the world. Aaron Finch had a lean series, um, puts his position
2: a little bit under the spotlight with Khawaja knocking on the door. And then George Bailey had an up and down series with his weird stance. What do we make of that with his, basically his back
1: to the bowler? Well, it's bizarre. You know, this late in your career to change it like that and to make it a talking point as well when he's already a little bit on the outer. Um, Obviously he's doing it for technical reasons, but I don't know. It's not not the greatest of looks, I don't think.
3: Yeah, and and I think, for me, Finch and Bailey look to be taking up spots that Kawaja and Maxwell could hold down. I think that they are the longer-term options in that batting lineup. You know, I think Bailey is now getting on a little bit. He captained the side for a period, but I would say his um his uh, one-day career is in its twilight at best. Yeah, I'm not prepared
2: to draw a line through Bales yet. Uh, but I think Finch is another one, though. When he looks bad, he looks terrible. But then not so long ago, he was one of our most consistent bats in one-day
3: cricket recently. So he's, he's a funny one. There's actually the idea of Maxwell opening in one-day internationals has been floated by some in the media. Well, what it's do you been think floated by some in this
2: very room, Joe. I know you probably haven't gone back and listened to some of the first times Paul was on the show. But, Paul, you'd obviously like to see Maxwell up the top there instead of Finch. Well, I'm such a
1: um, – I'm so far beyond Listen, the norm.
2: Paul is glowing yeah. right now with in his
1: face after Joe brought that up. I want Maxwell to be opening. I want Maxwell to be opening the Test matches. I'm not kidding. Um, so yeah, for him opening the One Days, I oh, absolutely <laughs> he should, certainly should be. So um, a bad performance
2: by New Zealand. Whatever Paul says is they should have got more than 147. They didn't. Stark took three for 34. Faulkner two for 26 head two for 37 Cummins two for 26 and the series ended fittingly with Steve Smith taking another stunning catch at slip of Paddy Cummins to end the series
3: and um Joe, you wanted to talk a bit about Patty Cummins? Yeah, I think I'm a, a, a known Pat Cummins devotee um, and great to see him back in the, the green and gold. Um, I, particularly encouraging to me was the fact that he was easily producing 150 k's an hour. Um, he can move the ball away from the right-hander um, in the air and he produces that ball that can get up off a of length. That, to me, is the, the holy trinity of fast bowling. And there is now talk of rushing him back into the Australian test squad I and mean, the Mark War has said the plan was to reintroduce him through T20 and then a shield game later in the series but what do you think about rushing him back into perhaps even India it would be a, a, that would be a sort of a, a put a lot of stress on on what has proven to be um, you know a young and and volatile body. No, I'm not a fan of rushing him back into the international
2: fold. I think it's time for Pat Cummins to play some Sheffield Shield cricket. Yeah. doesn't have to be a lot, but I'd like to see him string a few games together and just prove that he can not only fitness-wise do it, but also have the discipline to bowl long spells. I mean, he's unproven. You know, what if it's a tough day in the field and a batting side gets away? Can Pat Cummins deliver, you know, 15, 20 overs of good, solid, fast bowling? And I think what's been good
1: for most fast bowlers should be good for him prove yourself at state level agree man and if i was being um, if it was an ashes series coming up where you know english conditions would really suit him if we if we were touring england i'd be tempted to say let's throw all that out and just pick him anyway but given that we're going to india fast bowlers obviously struggle in india i think that would be um, a very bad mistake to pick him for that series yeah. one standout from that final one day international was the paltry
2: crowd that turned up to apparently The nation's sporting capitals, MCG, only a tick over 20,000 turned up to the MCG. And my research tells me that you can always take off 10% of that figure, so probably not even 20,000 people turned up to the MCG. And both captains were asked about the scheduling and were they disappointed with the crowd. And, And both Mr. Uninteresting Kane Williamson and Steve Smith said that it would be better if these games had a broader context.
1: I think it shows that Melbourne is the sporting capital of Australia that that many turned up at all. You're just going to argue with everything I say today, aren't you? No, I've got. I'm pretty angry about the uh, the, these notes. You're angry at me. No, I'm not angry at you. I'm angry at the MCG and Cricket Australia that they talked about all you know lowering the prices this year. Well, the prices for the. Um, the one day is at the MCG this year. Platinum $143, gold $122, silver $71, bronze 51 reserved $30. And to that you add a meaningless, meaningless, a meaningful $7 um, processing fee. Now, the, the cheapest two categories, reserved and bronze, I wouldn't sit there. It's sitting, you're exposed, you're getting a poor view. It's seven or eight hours. It's not worth it. A decent ticket at $71.00 as the minimum is just too much. There's just no way and go up to the top at $143. That's not um you're not you're not sitting in a sumptuous comfort. It's still just a plastic seat. I've sat in those seats. They're good seats. It's not luxury. It's a game of one-day cricket as as much of a cricket fan as I am, I can't justify paying $143. Those ticket prices should be halved. There's no way that they can. And I know that's not going to make the crowd suddenly double, but it's just bad a sign of bad faith to turn up um, a pitch that was substandard, in my opinion. Warner made a game of it because he was so brilliant. Everyone else couldn't uh, couldn't get it off the square. If it was without Warner, it would have been a horribly boring game. To pay that much to turn up for that for a, a meaningless series. Good on Melbourne for no. twenty thousand. Well, well said, up. Paul. Jeff Lemon started this dialogue last summer about
2: the ticket prices. But if you're sitting on the fence and thinking, should I go out or shouldn't I? And it's 140 odd bucks to sit in the shade and a decent seat, or I can stay at home for nothing and
3: watch it on TV. Mm. I think it's it's def- definitely a good point. Can I just bring the the topic conversation back to the on field action? And I was so glad to see us pick a full strength team in in what we traditionally call a dead rubber, because I think the importance of that is you know as Steve as Steve War used to call sort of putting the throat putting your, your foot on the opponent's throat is just keeping the momentum up through the summer. And particularly, you know, for the fast bowlers, Glenn, Glenn McGrath and, you know, I know other great fast bowlers have said that it's so important for those guys to sort of, you know, feel good about their rhythm. Um, and the best way to do that is by continuing to play through the uh, summer. And the
2: facts are Australia won four games of cricket in a row after losing seven in a row. So it's it's a big turnaround. But I want to move on from the Chapel Hadley Trophy... Australia have regained the trophy, it is back in the trophy cabinet, thanks Bob, and we will be playing for that at the end of the summer in New Zealand, so enjoy the six weeks we have with the Chapel Hadley Trophy, but it's now a really big test series is starting at the Gabba, under lights this Thursday, Australia v Pakistan, a three test series, the Gabba, then the traditional Boxing Day test, then the SCG New Year's test, it it augurs well for a great uh, three test series. And there's a few plot lines I want to discuss about this. Let's start though with the Mickey Arthur revenge factor. You know he was dumped from the Australian side as coach in early t- two thousand and thirteen. He now returns with the Pakistan side. Is it a chance? It's a chance to exact revenge. And also. It shouldn't be undersold what a little bit of inside knowledge can do for a team. We saw what Trevor Bayliss was able to do with the English side last year when he brought some inside knowledge. So how much of an effect do you think Mickey Arthur will have on this series,
3: gentlemen? Well, I think on actual you know knowledge of players, very little because there's not too many people who are still in the side from the Mickey Arthur Well, period. the big ones are Smith, Warner.
2: Smith and Warner, yeah. <laughs> you know, your two best batsmen, if he, if he has some... Um, strategies to get get them out early, then that's 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 a huge. They're two big wickets.
3: Yeah, look, I think Mickey Arthur, the Mickey Arthur factor, will be a for me a relatively minor point in the the, the series. Um, to me, the the much bigger question is um, can Pakistan live up to expectations? They have been a side that has been inconsistent in the past. I think they've now got a pretty good run of form. For the last 24 months, but in Australian conditions,
1: um, can they produce their best? Paul, what do you think about Mickey Arthur? It's funny, I was just reading Brad Haddon's book, and the way that he characterised what the team was like when he returned to the Australian setup when Mickey Arthur was coach. It was like the Australian players regarded him as a bit of a joke that he just seemed out of his depth that he was a, a well-meaning person who had turned it into a kindergarten I think the Australians would just regard him as oh Mickey's back um, genial fool who wasn't good enough to coach us and not give him a second's thought for him obviously there'd be a huge um, desire for to, to, to prove that he can coach but uh, you know I think I don't think he'll have a, a hell of a lot of effect on the series now one element of the
2: Pakistan side that worries me is the age of their two star batsmen. We have Mizba al Haq and Yunus Khan coming out here. Mizba ul Haq is forty two, so guys, we could still be playing Test cricket. And he averages forty-eight in Test cricket. And he is one of the great stories of middle aged men's success. And he, he did score the fast equaled the fastest ever Test century against Australia two years ago at the time b Max now gone past that. But I worry whether Misbah can keep that form
1: up on the quick, bouncy decks of Australia. I hope he can. Just for the reason you stated above, while ever he's playing, there is hope for us all. That um, a man well into his 40s, still playing at the top level and playing well, it's a, it's a wonderful story. Um, I, I think the bigger problem is his, is his, is his younger partner, young Eunice um, Khan, who's 39, he is really starting to look uh, as though he's passed it at test level. He got a couple of runs in the in the, in the the tour game that's going on at the moment. I think he's the concern because he's got the, the record of true greatness. Uh, I think it's a shadow of his former self that's arriving on our shores. Well, Eunice Khan averages 53
2: in test cricket with 33 test centuries. He's played three tests on Australian soil and averages 43. three. So he's got a sort of decent re- record. Ms. haq Averages 25, but I guess that's what worries me is two pillars of their batting lineup on these quick, bouncy decks facing the pace of Stark and Hazelwood, how they'll cope with
1: that. I'm going to go out on a limb. He averages 53. I don't think he'll score 53 runs total in this series. Big call from Paul Dannett, Eunice Khan, to
2: not. Well, if he does, if look, that'll be the end of his career because he had a horror tour of New Zealand. I don't think he'll get picked again if he scores under 53 runs in possible six test innings but i think the pakistan bowling attack poses the biggest threat for the australian side you've got a mix that australia does not cope with pace and swing and a really classy leg spinning Yazir shah to come on and that's the real danger stuff for australian cricket in this series
3: yeah absolutely Yazir shah i think is probably the first international leg spinner that can really turn it square like leg, like Warney used to and we know how well Warney performed on the the Gabba pitch so I'm expecting a, a big performance from your Shah Can I give you some figures to back up what you're talking about In 20 matches, 20
2: test matches he has 116 test wickets in 39 innings of bowling, he has eight four-wicket ho- hauls and eight five-wicket hauls. That means in almost half his test innings, he's taking four or above wickets in an innings it's extraordinary stuff and an extraordinary beginning to his test career and not only the Gabba, but then you move on to the mcg and the scg two grounds where spinners have done well historically it bodes really well for yuzir and not too good for our middle order when you look at Hanscom and madison coming in there at five and six you know, he could really just rip through us. Yeah, well, Hanscom's good against spin, but as I say... There's a
3: big difference uh, between spin at Sheffield Shield level and then someone like Izzy Shah. Couldn't agree more. And, and as I said before, you know, an ability to really turn it big. Um,
1: I don't think our batsman will have faced a, a bowler like that previously. He played so well in the um, recent series in England, especially in the first Test match, where Pakistan had a massive triumph of getting a 2-all series draw in a wonderful Test series... So I agree that especially, I think, come Sydney, uh, he'll be quite good preparation for our guys going to India, actually, because they're going to get more of it over there. He, he's the kind of bowler that when conditions don't suit, he fades away quite, quite a bit. But as soon as he gets something, then he, he jumps up fivefold and he becomes an absolute destroyer.
2: There's a stable of dangerous fast bowlers that Pakistan have brought with them. They also bring some interesting plot lines. Mm. Muhammad Amir, he copped a little bit from the English crowds. What do we think the reception will be from the Australian crowds?
1: I don't think it'll be too bad. I think that the the story is well known among cricketing fans uh, of him being rubbed out for um, for spot fixing. But I think there will be enough people turning up that it's kind of faded into obscurity a little bit. There won't be enough momentum to really for the crowd to really boo him too much. I don't think.
3: I've actually always thought that he was harshly treated in that affair because it was a set up by a. A UK tabloid. I think he was 19 at the time. His captain was in on it. I think it was a, a really harsh penalty for a young guy. I mean, when, when he was bowling in his first stint in Test Cricket, he was such a dangerous young bowler. Um, I'd love to, I'd actually, for the sake of Test Cricket, I'd love to see him get back to his best, but I think his recent performance in England um, was a little bit disappointing, as you've said. Well, I wonder if the Bay 13
2: crowd was be as sympathetic as you were, Joe. The one thing about Muhammad uh, Amir is he's displayed the ability to get the pink ball to move feet, literally mm. two feet, swinging the ball. So it's going to be a handful under light at the Gabba
1: if he's producing those prodigious in swinging yorkers. Yeah, and I think, I, just back on that, I hope the Australian crowd are nice to him because further to your point, Joe, and I've talked about this on the show before, but there was an article by Mike Atherton that I'm said... Start calling you the Reverend. <laughs> ...that said that basically, Mohammed Amir had no intention to spot fix at all. He kind of got tricked into doing it to save his own career as he thought he had to do. It's a long, complex process. But I I think that we should let bygones be bygones and embrace him. And I think he could be effective. His overall record hasn't been so great coming back. But on certain spells, he's looked really, really good. And who can forget the
2: devastating spell Wahab Riaz produced in last year's Cricket World Cup at the Adelaide Oval where he put Shane Watson under the pump? Wahab Riaz comes to Australia with 65 test wickets after 21 tests. It's not an amazing return, but this is a tour where Riaz can really stamp his authority on the the
1: Pakistan test side. Well, he needs to be able to stamp his front foot in the right spot. That's his problem. He bowls no balls and takes wickets uh, almost uh, comically. I've watched so many times where he oversteps and takes a wicket and doesn't learn from it. And if you're watching this summer and as an Australian fan and he takes a wicket, um, hang on before you get upset because it's almost certain that there's going to be a few instances where the Australian batsman gets called back. He's got the old Brett Lees. Um, so Wahab Riaz is a real
2: danger man. Rahit, Rahat, Ali. Uh, he had an up and down tour of England, but another left arm quick that moves the ball around. So. As I said, I think this attack
1: poses threats. It's better than its numbers look like as well. Sorry to jump in because they play so many of their games on those dead pitches in the UAE that uh, some of their bowling averages aren't all that exciting on paper. But when you have to play game after game where there's not much on offer, it will be a real pleasure for them to come and bowl on the Gabba, I think.
2: Now, the Australians named an unchanged 12 for the Gabba test. Nathan Lyon retains his spot. Sean Marsh was not considered for
3: selection. Quickly, guys, are we happy with that team? Broadly speaking. They they had no choice after Smith came out and called it the dawn of a new era after Adelaide. They can't then make changes, can they? I think the guy who's going to be under most pressure... um, Well, there's two, as I pointed out previously. I think um, Renshaw... You know, scores pretty slowly. Um, he'll need a he'll need to kind of have a big knock, I think, in the first couple of tests
1: to to retain his spot. Well, I think Maddinson is also and Maddinson, yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree that having picked Maddinson, I think it would be ridiculous to drop him now. But I wouldn't have picked him in the first place just because he hasn't. I mean, he's average of thirty seven or whatever it is in first class cricket isn't good enough for me. I've always got a question mark against Nathan Lyon. I know that lots of people rate him really highly. He bowled well towards the end of the Adelaide Test match, uh, but I've still got a massive question mark on him succeeding, especially as we go to India. Now, the, the reports
2: are from the Gabba that the way the pitch behaves under lights is fairly similar to the way it behaves normally because the Gabba is normally a little bit green and quite a lush outfield that they don't have to prepare the ground Differently for the pink ball, they don't have to leave extra grass on the pitch. So, we should see a similar Gabba wicket than we normally see. The ball, though, will probably swing around more under lights. Again, swing is always determined on is it cold, is it warm, humidity, but generally, there should be a little bit of movement under lights at the Gabba. Add to that a little bit of grass on the pitch, which is normal. Should be a very good cricket wicket as it normally is. And there is the potential for evening storms to add a bit of drama there. Uh, You know, the afternoon thunderstorms at Queensland so frequently get, so we could have breaks, but there's quick drainage. So it'll be interesting to see how that
1: all plays out at the Gabba, under lights for the very first time. It'll be also interesting as to what sort of crowd we get, that Brisbane traditionally hasn't had big crowds for test matches and... I'm not expecting bumper bumper crowds, but if we could get um, healthy crowds into the 20,000s and look quite full, that would be really good. Yeah, Queensland's never struck me as great
2: supporters of cricket recently, so as I said, big, this is a big chance for the Gabba test to regain some of its lustre. Now it's prediction time, gentlemen. Let's start off with Matty Renshaw. How many cow and tons will Matt Renshaw score in the upcoming series? And Ed Cowan-Tun is facing 100 balls. I'll
3: start with you, Joe. Well, firstly, I'm not a big fan of the, the Cowan-Tun analogy. A little bit disrespectful to that great left-hand opening batsman, Who? Ed Cowan. <laughs> the great left-hand opening batsman. <laughs> so
2: how many Cowan-Tuns for Short Six innings, possibly? Oh, I'd say five. Five? Big yeah. call. Cool. Well, if he does that, he'll have retained his spot, no doubt. What about you, Paul? Um, I'll say... Two. Yeah, I'll stick with your analogy, Paul, too. I think it could be a tough one for opening batsmen with the ball hooping around. So, yeah, I think he'll have a few failures there. Now, in the last series against South Africa, we saw the Australian side have a spate of crucial runouts and of crucial batsmen at the wrong time. So I'm going to set an over or under of three runouts in the series for Australia. I'll start with you, Paul. Will there be more than three or less than three run-outs for Australia?
1: I'm going under. I'm going to say zero run-outs. Um, So we fixed the problem? No, I think that the the Pakistanis are causing Steve Rickson to pull his hair out. He's the the fielding coach. He's the kind of bloke that hits you 500 catches before breakfast. The Pakistanis have improved their fielding, um, but there's um, there's still a way to go before they reach the standard of other sides. So I'm going to say zero run-outs.
3: Highly unlikely we'll see over three. I would say, you know, the particularly from from our experience, batsmen. Well, you would Smith... have said
2: you wouldn't have you would have said the same thing before the South African series. But Australia seems to want to push for quick singles in a Test match.
3: Yeah, I think they'll
2: have sorted that out by now. Well, I'm glad you've said that. And I don't think hey,
1: is playing for. Um, <laughs> for back Interesting, you
2: brought up Steve Rickson, the fielding coach. For Pakistan, he brings with him some of what Mickey Arthur brings. He was overlooked for the Australian coaching job a couple of times. One of the most respected figures in Australian coaching, in the Australian coaching circuit, would have an intimate knowledge about the conditions and the players. So you've got two really good cricket brains in the Pakistan dressing room for this summer. Now I guess uh, back to your point, uh, Paul, about Nathan Lyon. Will Stephen O'Keefe
1: be the spinner? for the SCG test? Well, he might be an additional spinner, but I think they'll also pick Nathan Lyon because obviously Nathan Lyon has got something on the selectors that I don't think he'll ever be dropped. He'll be picked for the next 50 years. Well,
3: I agree. I think they'll go for two spinners um, in Sydney. And then the the bigger question um, will be, do, do they then hold on to, you know, who 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 is, I guess, the, the number one spinner for India will be the question if we see a spin-off in Sydney.
2: Yeah, I think we'll see Stephen O'Keefe play as the sole spinner at the SCG test. Uh-huh. Now, the result of the Gabba
3: test. I'm going to say Australia are going to win the Gabba test. Joe, you can start this one off. Well, if weather doesn't intervene, I will say Australia will win at the Gabba.
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, I confidently predicted an Australian 3-0 sweep in Sri Lanka recently, so my my predictions could be taken with a grain of salt. I think that Hazelwood and Stark against the Pakistani uh, top order uh, are going to be too good, and I'm going to predict a 3-0 Australian whitewash. 3-0 whitewash. That's a big prediction. Yeah, and... Uh, I, you know, Pakistan were recently number one side in the world. They drew two all against England. They, they are improving. They've got a lot to like about them. I just really rate Stark and Hazelwood under our conditions.
2: What about the conditions the, the Pakistan team just faced in New Zealand? They, they played two tests over there. The ball was hooping around. Maybe the, that test for them will have prepared them for this uh series better do you think that's a factor
1: I think it certainly would have helped them the, the, the conditions were very very much different to what they'd had just before against the West Indies in the UAE and they didn't handle them all that well but they lost fairly convincingly without being thrashed and there were periods that you would like the, the thing that was disappointing was they just couldn't seem to get the ball off the square that when they were really knuckling down they're having a run rate often of about one and over and there's no future in that so um they will certainly be better for for that though What about you, Joe? What's your pick for this series? Well,
3: I I broadly agree with Paul. I think they're going to struggle against Hazelwood and Stark, and particularly the consistency of of Hazelwood. I think he's in close-to-career-best form at the moment, so I think he's going to play a major part in this series. No revelation there. And I think we will win convincingly 3-0 if weather doesn't intervene is my prediction as well. Two 3-0 predictions. Usually I'm the one full of
2: confidence and bravado but i actually think australia will probably lose a test in this series i'm going to go 2-1 australia Yazir shah will will get through us a couple of times and if it happens to be in the melbourne on the last day or sydney where he's bowling i think we could be in real trouble so i'm going to go 2-1 australia in this series and that if pakistan were to win a test match it would still be a relatively good achievement for them Uh, noting their poor performance on Australian soil historically. Well, let's move on now. Before we go on, let's go on to the Have A Go Your Mug promotion. Uh, If you can go on to iTunes and leave a review for the Australian Cricket Podcast, you will be going the draw for Have A Go Your Mug Mug and um, if you can email me when you leave the review so I, can, so I know that you've left a review because I can only see the Australian store. And if look, if that's too complicated, go and subscribe to the show on Patreon for $5 a month or more, and you will get a mug straight away. Uh, we've had two really good reviews this week, Joe, and I'll get you to pick out the winner. There's uh, an English and an
3: Australian entrant. Drum roll, i as I reach into the cup, and the winner is Singai. And what Singai had to say about the Australian Cricket Podcast is love it. Look forward to each ep. Menas keeps things moving and all panellists are not afraid to have an opinion. And it's clear they're passionate about Aussie cricket. Great variety of segments. Well, isn't he a good judge of a
2: cricket <laughs> podcast? <laughs> great bloke. So, listeners, thank you so much. Take the time. Subscribe to the show. Email us. Get on Twitter. Joe will be on Twitter eventually. You can also find the show on Facebook as the Australian Cricket Podcast. And just a quick reminder... If you haven't already done it go and subscribe to the big smash cricket podcast the newest podcast coming out of these studios all about the bbl and wbbl uh, so subscribe to the big smash cricket podcast oh
3: and gerard then looked as though he kicked back at ande herrera and martin atkinson i think he's got the
1: red card out. well that didn't last long
2: Welcome back to the Australian Cricket Podcast. I'm here with Joe and Paul. And that was a red card being dished out in football. And we could see the very same thing happen in cricket soon after the MCC World Cricket Committee met last week. And one of the things on their agenda was adding red and yellow cards to cricket uh, right up to the top level. What do we think of that uh,
1: initiative, gentlemen? I think it's a, it's a good one. I don't know that they're going to add red and yellow cards. I don't think it's got that detailed yet. I think they've just um, introduced the capacity for sending a player off. I think it's mainly to at the lower levels of the game where there's been too much abuse that's been going on, and we're probably never going to see one used at international level or very, very rarely... It's a good thing to have in there so that there's a there's a line that can't be crossed. One, one thing that was
2: interesting was that 40% of umpires surveyed said that they conceded giving up the role due to abuse they received by players. So obviously that's a lower level thing, but we don't want people being scared away from the game because of uh, players that can't pull their head
3: in on the field, do we, Joe? No, and I think that addressing... Um, the the scourge of sledging at the lower levels of cricket is probably a, a good thing because it's something that I guess gets ingrained in in people at an early age. Um, and yes, we need to we need to respect our officials um, because without them, we we don't have a game to play.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's appalling, really. That that many I mean, abuse in a game of cricket at low levels. Having played lots of sort of low-level cricket myself, whenever we got an official umpire turning up, even if he was 110 and blind, it was just such a pleasure, rather than having the batting side having to do it and then there's all sorts of conflicts of interest and it's it's just so much nicer when you get an official umpire. And any player out there who's ever abused one of them, um, really come on. I wonder what international
2: players would come close to being sent off with a red card. I put that football incident because, I mean, going back in history, you might have that time where me and dad kicked Lily and, or Lily kicked me and dad and me and dad pulled the bat up to hit him. That might've been a red card if if that rule was around then. but you wouldn't see it too often where players get physical enough for a red card at
1: international level. It was also against spectators. And so, Technically, Andrew Simons, when he's crash-tackled the streaker um, a few years ago, might have got a red card, as would Greg Chappell all those years ago when the streaker came out and Greg Chappell offered him his hand and then proceeded to clasp hold of his hand so he could beat him about the buttocks for a few minutes.
2: <laughs> so we've gone full throttle. Now, what we're, we're into read and react now. We're talking about the MCC World Cricket Committee. They're a, a team of experts on cricket that meet to recommend initiatives to the ICC that actually don't actually make changes but they recommend things for the ICC to then uh, make a a law of the game one thing they talked about was putting limits on bat sizes from the total width to the width of the edge and the bat makers said that even if they do this it shouldn't change the effect too much because the bat makers will go back to using a denser wood uh, to, so you won't see much change, I think, at the top level. Do we think this is needed?
3: You know, I, I often find it strange that when they talk about David Warner's bat and they do the close-up of it and they say, oh, you know, it's such a huge piece of wood. Why then is everyone not using a, a similar bat if the pickup is so light? So, um, you know, look, I think the the bats have evolved. Um, it But, happens but how in- far can they keep
2: going? I mean, eventually you're just going to literally have someone walking out with a tree trunk. I mean... They have to have some sort
3: of limits on them. But it happens in every sport. I mean, you know, tennis has gone from wooden rackets to graphite to, to new um, materials. I think, you know, the the game is evolving. You can't stop that. And I think uh, bat manufacturers coming up with new ways to, to create light pickups, I think has probably been a good
1: thing for the entertainment factor in cricket. I agree, but I think that there is a point that which you don't want to go any further than. And I think this is a good thing that... The, the tennis and golf analogies. The difference is there that it's um, you know tennis racket. Tennis, you each have the same racket, um, whereas in here it's the balance between bat and ball. I think what you don't want to see is too many leading edges going for four or top edges going for six. The entertainment value has certainly been enhanced, but I think now is about the right time to say let's not go any further. And there's a safety issue of bowlers. Ball's being hit back at them. Umpires, obviously, the
2: bigger bats, That's the harder true. the ball is going to come
3: back. We've heard some some very left field comments in the last week about the need for umpires and possibly even bowlers to wear helmets from the Channel Nine commentary. I thought Ian, he- that was one of the poorer form, poorer pieces of commentary from Ian Healy over the the, the past series. <laughs> I mean, look, it
2: does sound outlandish, perhaps, but you know I'm a big baseball fan, and they do—they're working on a kind of helmet for pitchers to protect their head so they can pitch and have some but headwear. They're stationary, so, not, so yeah, I know, different. but they still—they're not really stationary if you look at their actions.
1: So yeah, it, look, it sounded more outlandish than I think it was. I think the thing, Joe, is I agree. It, it sounds outlandish, and it did the idea of a bowler running in in a helmet. Well, that was the question that he once asked: "How do you bowl to Clive Lloyd?" And the answer was in a helmet. But um. There will come a time, you think, when something does happen. When you see the replays of a batsman who's absolutely middle one, it goes past the bowler before the bowler can react in any way. What happens when the, one of those goes straight into the, the bowler's nose or temple, temple and yep. causes grievous um, grievous harm or into the umpire? Geez, I don't know. It's a hard one. I agree, the, the sight of a bowler running in and a helmet sounds stupid, but... It would be like something like headwear that they wear in rugby or something. But let's move on to
2: something else at the MCC Cricket Committee. And this is something that really stuck out for me from the Read and React was that the committee was evenly split between the notion of four-day tests. I would have thought it would be a much more radical split against four-day tests. You would think the majority of cricket trad- traditionalists would support a five-day test. But no, it was evenly split with the thought of moving to four-day tests I don't
3: like four-day tests. Joe, where do you sit? Dead against it, Manners. This is where my conservatism for the game will, will show its head. I think we've got to do everything to encourage results in test cricket. I think the period where test cricket was struggling a little bit was you know when we were seeing a lot of dead pitches and a lot of draws. So I think if we go to four-day tests, we're going to see more draws, which is ultimately not good for the game. Particularly if we go to a you know a, a sort of a league table or a World Cup of, of tests, you want to see as many results as possible. So I, I don't like the idea. So Paul, I'm guessing you're going to say you're in favour of four day tests.
1: I'm like the committee. I'm torn, but at this stage, I'm not in favour of them. Ooh, but dodged the bullet there, listeners. But let me put it this way: the the idea of them is attractive in the sense that forget for putting aside the draws, which is a major issue. I agree. But the idea of being able to start every test match on a Thursday and finish every one on a Sunday, kind of like a golf major, mm. which then means that you can then play them again the following Thursday. So you can have three weeks, three test matches, which you can't do at the moment because you have to have at least three days in between. And so that the scheduling would be very attractive. What I would like to see is, could we squeeze in the overs? Now, I heard Mike Brearley, the head of the, the, this MCC committee, talking about how back when he used to play... They bowl 16 or 17 overs an hour. And at the time, everyone was saying, that's too slow. That's too slow. These days, part of the reason the overrate is so slow is that there's just endless standing around doing nothing. What about if we said, let's make it 16 overs an hour and let's bowl seven hours a day. Seven 16s are 112 times four is 448. Four-day test match with two fewer overs than a current five-day test match. What about that for an idea? I think it's a utopian ideal that we could never
3: actually reach. There is a stroke of genius in what Paul's just said. I think regardless of whether you go for four or five day tests, I think finishing every test on a Sunday would be a great idea because I hate it when a test goes to an exciting fifth day, but it's on a Monday or a Tuesday and there are five people at the ground so I think there's some merit in that idea well that then that's one of the thing the proponents of this idea are talking
2: about one thing that the, Mike really talked about in that interview was uh, how much would cutting that fifth day change the game? would you have this great desire to move the game forward because you knew that you you know if you wanted to get a result you'd be more declarations, more quick batting uh, more aggressive play? So, look, there's different factors to consider.
1: I don't think under the current situation, if we just went, right, okay, cutting a whole day's play, you can't leave it in the hands of the captains. Recently, Alistair Cook in the first test match between India and England had an opportunity to to declare, um, to really make a game of it, and didn't. he waited too long to declare. And when you've got the weight of your country's expectations on you, I don't blame people. I'd be quite conservative as a captain as well. I don't think we can um, leave it in the hands of captains. I think if we went to four-day tests without increasing the overs we'd end up with more draws and um, that's a problem. So this panel has given
2: four-day tests the thumbs down so they can take that to the MCC World Cricket Committee. The Australian Cricket Podcast says no to four-day tests. Now let's move on to the last bit of news to come out of that meeting was that they will not be changing the ball tampering laws. FAF, I'm afraid you'll have to turn to someone else for help. Good. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. And, and the one thing that they came out of that was that they feel that they need to leave the definition artificial substance broad, so that um, you don't end up having to name every substance you can't put on a ball in the law. It's better to have one broad term, and you know the people that the ICC have to use
3: their common sense when enforcing the law. But they've they've missed the mark in the sense that the the real grey area. Is a bodily fluid, whether that be saliva or sweat, mixed with an artificial substance, whether that be sun cream or lip balm. So I think that's where the real grey area is. So if if you're talking about sugar-infused saliva, which was the issue at the heart of the FAF incident, is that a natural substance or is it not? They haven't really. No, it's not that a natural up. substance. It's a a lolly on his tongue. But when, look, we're not going
2: over the FAF affair again. FAF, FAF gate's finished. Let's move on to read and react. The last segment is something that came up at a press conference with Darren Lehman that I found very, very interesting about the way the Australian cricket team is run and the way Darren Lehman runs his coaching setup. What he likes to do is he likes to set up a leadership group within the team that's outside the normal leadership group. So in this case, it's David Warner, Mitchell Stark and Josh Hazelnut That nickname has stuck, by the way. It was on the front page of a major Sydney newspaper. Hazelnut Stark and Warner have a secondary leadership group, and they're the ones that decided on giving Maxwell his fine. And they have this group so that if there is a problem with the coach or the captain, there is
3: an avenue for players to go to. What do you guys think of this idea? Well, we know from your recent interview with Darren Lehman that he looks to other sports for coaching inspiration. And this idea of a leadership group is one that has been in AFL for a long time. Um, and I know um, men as the... It, it has worked really well there I think the the advantage of it is you avoid possible scenarios where you have one-on-one issues with captain and player and we saw that with you know Michael Slater and Steve war we saw it possibly with Michael Clark and 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 uh, everybody uh, well, <laughs> but 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 particularly the the well-publicized issue with Simon caddditch so I I like the idea and, and you'll, you'll notice that in this iteration of the leadership group, it is purely a blue bagger's leadership group. You notice, definitely.
2: <laughs> uh, Lehman said about when he was asked about this that he thinks the best teams are run by the senior players and this gives them that vehicle. I just don't know if it's t- too much leadership. You've got Smith who's supposed to be the leader. Then you've got Darren Lehman who's supposed to be a leader. Then you've got David Warner, the vice captain. Why do you need another committee to, to decide on
1: things? I don't think it's a bad idea. I mean, flippantly. And you disagree with me. Flippantly, I think that, you know, it is very Aussie rules focused, and that, I mean, South Australian Darren Lehman probably thinks that a leadership group is the most natural thing in the world, but um, I I like a bit of a rugby league mentality to it to to be alongside us. Or we know a few atrocities to, to balance out this wholesomeness of a leadership group. Yeah, well, I'm not a big fan now that was read and react this week
2: this week there is no commentary critique segment because no real new material but the next test match sees the beginning of triple m's foray into test cricket and I guarantee we'll be giving them our analysis and critique in the next show you guys will be listening to the triple m network won't you to hear their test cricket coverage
1: I'll definitely give it a try. I think it's wonderful that uh, um, that we're now going to have three networks on radio covering the test cricket. How good I is think, that? I think it's wonderful, more material for the critique segment.
3: What yeah, about you, Joe? I'll definitely be uh, sampling it, and I think again, interesting to note that in this era of you know new mediums, that the the radio still has real relevance for for cricket commentary.
2: Well, live sport is just one of those few areas where commercial networks both radio and TV, can get people watching a live event and therefore sell valuable
1: advertising. There's not many areas now where people will watch a live TV event. And I think in prospect, the Triple M coverage, that it's going to have some people outside cricket, some comedians and and whatever else, it could go one of two ways. I think if the comedians are there trying to just put gags in all the time, it won't work. But if usually comedians are very interesting people, even when they're not trying to be funny. If you get a comedian who is a cricket lover just talking about the game You know, in an interested and interesting way, I think it could be a breath of fresh air. And if the occasional humorous thing comes up, then so be it. That'd be cool. I hope they don't push the envelope too much and make it too contrived for humour. It harks my mind back
2: to the '90s. I think when like Roy and HG used to cover some of the one-day games, the, the the World Series finals and stuff. And I would always tune into them. Maybe I wouldn't listen to a whole game, but just an hour of them with their nicknames for the players and a few anecdotes would just liven up the coverage. But we're going to end the Australian Cricket Podcast with the segment... What has made us happy in the last week, cricket related? Joe, I'm looking at you. Um,
3: so let's start with you, Joe. What has made you happy in the last week, cricket related? Well, what's made me happy is that it looks like the policy of resting players in Australian cricket, which has been around a feature of the Pat Howard era, is now officially um, dead, buried, and cremated. And, um, you know, our performance in this one-day series has been all the better for it.
1: What about you, Paul? What's made you happy? Well, Joe touched upon it earlier in the show, but Pat Cummins' return reminds me of how I felt in 2015 when it just looked like we had the best fast bowling and group assembled that you could imagine. We had Mitchell Johnson and Ryan Harris and Stark and Hazelwood and Cummins and Pattinson, and then it suddenly... For a variety of reasons, devolved into this recent tour of South Africa where we had um, a group of anonymous players um, bowling for Australia. It looks like that's coming back together, and it's not beyond the realms of possibility that come the first test of the Ashes next summer, we could have the holy uh, quartet of um, Hazelwood, Stark, Cummins, and Pattinson. How good would that be? Well, that's a really, I
2: echo that sentiment. It's exciting times for the fast bowlers tell you what's made me happy in the last week. Yesterday, I got to go out to the Women's Big Bash League and saw a stunning victory by the heat at the end. But then I managed to live out one of my cricketing dreams, which was to meet and talk to none other than Elise Perry, who plays for my football team, my cricket team, plays for two national sides. So I got to cross off one of my cricketing dreams to meet Elise Perry. So that's what made, has made me happy in the last week. And you got to interview her as well. Yep, got to have a chat with her about cricket and grilled her about her captaincy, so obviously um, I wasn't too starstruck. <laughs> All right, listeners, well,
3: thanks for downloading the Australian Cricket Podcast this week. Joe, thanks for coming in. Great to be here, menes and uh, looking forward to uh, the, the Test Series getting underway. Paul, thanks for coming
2: in. Thanks, guys. And uh, enjoy the Test Series against Pakistan, and we'll be back next week with the Australian Cricket Podcast
3: stroke. He's played no better shot than that in the whole of this series. Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: Step into the world of power, loyalty.